You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Adult Sunday School, Kootenai Community Church. So let's open in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity to be able to look into your word, to be astounded by it, to be edified by it, to be taught, to be instructed, to be corrected. Lord, we love you and we want you to be eminent, preeminent in our lives. And the way that happens is by you working your word into our lives. And so this morning we ask for wisdom for instruction from you so that we might be more able to carry out the duties and the responsibilities you've given us, but also to the joy that we have in serving you. And we just thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hey, I said it right this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And um, we're going to read chapter 5, the whole chapter this morning for just for giggles, because it's much better than anything I'll say anyway. Second Corinthians chapter 5, For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, all new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Sometimes when I stumble, it's because of 35 years of memorizing in the King James. <laughs> and just, I'm reading a verse and it comes back to me. So, it's been a couple of weeks. Actually, it's been longer than that. It's been, um, yeah, a couple of weeks. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in First, Second Corinthians chapter 5. And our last, the last verse we, we finished with was verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Of course, this is applied to Christians and to the judgment that Christ has for rewards, not for sin, as we mentioned, that the sin has been taken care of at the cross permanently by the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that kind of recompense and how it would be that He would be able to review our entire lives and that we would, even in this, glorify God. Then we had an interlude. Uh, we talked about um, free will and predestination, followed by... Andrew, Andrew Rappaport being here. And then, uh, so this week we're going to take back up with verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11 in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So whenever we look at a therefore, I always had a, I had a teacher that told me one time, you need to know what it's there for. And you're looking backwards, there's a number of therefores in chapter 5, but the judgment seat of Christ is what has just previously been talked about in the very last verse. And what that should engender in us, is what Paul is saying, is, is a fear, an awe, a respect, a concern for pleasing the Lord. Therefore, because of that, because of that judgment, we persuade men... Paul's reverence and fear of the Lord caused him to take this opportunity to humbly defend himself against false accusations coming from the fake, the fake apostles there in Corinth. His conscience was clear, and he had stated thus in chapter 4, verse 2, when he reminded the Corinthians that he had renounced the wicked ways he used to live in, the ways of actually chasing down Christians, pulling them out into the public square and, and uh, issuing charges against them and possibly having them executed. That would be a very difficult thing to to grow away from, from for someone. Uh, he had renounced the wicked ways he'd used to live in, persecuting the church and killing Christians. He was carefully persuading those in Corinth, knowing he was pure before God, having his entire life made manifest to God. And that's something that we would all do well to remember, that it's not like when we pray that God is in the room. God is everywhere all the time. And when we think he's not watching, <laughs> we're wrong. We should, it would be really cool if we could hear a giant gong. You're wrong. Anybody remember the gong show? Yeah. Gong, you're wrong. Peter. There are no dumb questions. I don't know. He's not in a bologna sandwich, but what, what, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Oh, you're talking about pantheism. Yeah, no, he, no we're not pantheists. He's also not in any pans. Either, by the way, even the good ones. He is among us and he is in every situation. He's around us right now. He's with us right now. But you, you, his spirit is with us. Yes. 
his spirit. He is here. His spirit is dwelling in us, in each and every Christian in this room, and he is in every he is he's he's located here, if I could say that. It's not like the devil who has to send demons and he can't be in every place. He is everywhere. But he's not the he's not a chair god or a or a cement god or if that's what you're getting at. Yes. Um and I would postulate also that this is one of those aspects of the deity of God, of the, of the omnis, omnipresence of God that is just right at the edge of human understanding. So if you're not sure you get all of it, join the group. Join the group. But He is here. He is among us. And He is in every, He is indwelling. His Spirit indwells every Christian in this room. So what I was, yes, I was getting at is that it, it's not like He's unaware of what's going on. He's aware of everything. Everything. Especially, and, and not only aware of the things that are going on, but the motivations that are providing those things. So Paul had renounced all of that. He knew his life was manifest to God. Manifest means open and observable. It's, he, um, everything we do is before God. Everything we ha- do, we have to do is before God. He was walking, now what's going on here is there are people in Corinth who are detractors. They're, they're speaking ill of Paul. And you know what it's like when someone speaks ill of you. You don't really want to toot your own horn, but they're wrong. They're just dead wrong. What do I do about that? If I say something, people are going to think I'm, well, he's bragging again. If I don't say something, well, maybe they'll, he, he didn't say anything. Maybe that's, some of that's true. So Paul was a man. This is some of the stuff he was going through. He knew that if these detractors had their way, it could actually undercut the uh, propagation of the gospel into the churches. And that was far more important to him than his reputation. He could care less about his reputation. Couldn't care less? Couldn't care less. He could care less? Why didn't he care less? you got to use, did I do that right, Jenny? (laughs) Couldn't care less. (laughs) Couldn't care less. (laughs) Uh, What he was concerned about was the gospel and how the gospel would be minimize and detracted from as well. So he was walking a fine line between bragging and keeping quiet in the face of attacks on the pure word of God. He knew that if he did not convince the Corinthians to listen to him and not to the false teachers, there would be problems. There would be... He he knew that if he did not convince the Corinthians that he was worth listening to, the gospel would suffer as he was one of the bearers of truth of the New Testament, and he knew it. So out of necessity and biblical compulsion, he encourages the Corinthians to listen to him and not to the false teachers. The fear that he talks about is not terror or dread, but neither is it simply just respect and reverence. It is something between those two ideas. Barclay comments this way. Comments this way. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of God. This passage follows very directly on the one that has gone before. Paul had just spoken of standing at the judgment tribunal of Christ. All his life is lived with that kept in view. It is not so much the terror of Christ that he really talks about. It is rather awe and reverence that he means. The Old Testament is full of the thought of a cleansing fear. Job speaks of the fear of the Lord that is wisdom in Job 28, 28. The fear of the Lord that is wisdom. What does the Lord your God require of you, asks the writer of Deuteronomy. And the first item on his answer is to fear the Lord your God. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. The fear of the Lord, says Proverbs, is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it starts. Proverbs 1, 7. Compare and compare that with Proverbs 9, 10 for those of you who are keeping notes. By the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs 1, 7. Or excuse me, Proverbs 16.6. By the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs 16.6. This does not describe the fear of a dog who waits for a whipping or of a cowed child. It is that which keeps even a thoughtless man from desecrating a holy place. It is that which keeps a man from doing things which would break the heart of someone he loves. The fear of the Lord, said the psalmist, is clean. Psalms 19.9. There is a cleansing fear without which a man cannot live the life he ought. And as we fear God... We reverence, respect, and know that He has the power to do whatever He will. There, there should be a, just a little bit of God will have His way, and we should know that. We love Him, we respect Him, we honor Him, but He is the God, the sovereign God of the universe, and there is nothing that will escape His hand, nothing. And so sometimes children behave because they know mom is going to inspect the room, don't they? Sometimes they don't, but often they behave because they know an inspection is coming, a look is coming. And sometimes that happens with us. We behave out of duty. Okay, it needs to become love. It needs to become a wanting. But it's better to behave out of duty than to misbehave, is it not? <laughs> okay, but the fear of the Lord is, is somewhere between reverence and awe and terror <laughs> because He is the God of the universe I mean, we're not talking about Superman or, or some Avenger hero. This is the God of the universe that we're talking about here. Sovereign Lord. Nothing escapes Him. So Paul's desire is that in the same way he is open, humble and truthful before God, the Corinthians would recognize that he is the same way with them. His life is open to God, and He has voluntarily opened His life to the Corinthians. And that's part of what 2 Corinthians is so well respected and loved for, because it's a, it's, a, it's a look into the life of the apostle, not just doctrine. There's plenty of doctrine here, but it's a look into the life of the apostle and how he opened himself up to these people, even with the chance of them rejecting him. That's a hard thing to do, no matter what you are, no matter who you are. He does not want accolades or praise. He wants them to grow in the Lord. And he knows that that may very well depend highly on them believing the truth of God's Word. Not very well, it will depend on them believing the truth of God's Word as he delivers it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's not quite the same as the boy who cried wolf, finally learning to tell the truth and having to convince the townsfolk he previously deceived that he was trustworthy now. But it's similar. Whereas before he was a murdering, Christian-hating persecutor of the church, now he is one of God's emissaries and ambassadors to the world. And he's going to confer that ambassadorship to the Corinthians later on in this chapter. As we read through, you saw that. He's going to, he's going to remind them that he's not the only ambassador here. It's not like an embassy in a foreign country where there's one ambassador. We're all ambassadors. We are all emissaries, people who represent the Word, people who represent the, the life of Christ to the world. It is at once an incredibly lofty position, yet it is completely innervated and prosecuted by the Spirit of God Himself. And in this case, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians, he is the tool that the Lord is using to get the word to them. Do not believe those false deceivers. That's implicit. 
uh, implied in this text. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also to your consciences. Any comments about this or questions, concerns? Okay. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Well, if the false accusations were left uncalled, un unchallenged, it would bring great harm to the New Testament church now forming. Paul did not want Pauling and anti-Paul factions splitting the Corinthian church. They had problems enough. He was dealing with people who took pride in their appearance and how people perceived them. I wish none of us struggled with that. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that is part of the human condition, part of the fall of man. We take pride in what we think people perceive us as, and so we often try to act like we think people want us to appear to them. Paul isn't doing that. Paul is opening himself up, he's living his life, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's open and manifest. He had a bad past. He acknowledged it. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to sugarcoat it. But he does let the Corinthians know that he has moved on from that by the grace of God. This was of little concern. Appearance was of little concern to him in the real world. But he knew that if the Corinthians believed the lies and challenges that the false apostles were bringing, it could cause irreparable harm. He did not want the Corinthians to be proud of him because he was a big man, but because he was a deliverer of the truth and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not commending himself, and he knew that. He trusted that the Lord commended him. His desire for the Corinthians to be proud of him was, again, not for his own self-aggrandizement, but rather was so that they would have an answer for those who were liars and were preaching a false gospel. They could point to Paul and say, this is what Paul said. And he was trustworthy. He could be considered trustworthy. Do we not consider him trustworthy today? He wrote the inspired word of God. That's what he was doing then. This was for 2 Corinthians. More was to come, and he knew that. I don't know how much he knew of that, but I know he knew enough of it. I believe he knew enough of it that he had to put down these false views of him because the Spirit of God was going to inspire him to create, to, to provide what we can grow on, what we read and the Holy Spirit uses in our lives and did then to change people from the inside out, to make them different from what they were, so that later on he could say, all things have become new. What does all mean, you think, there? We'll get to that. I saw some smiles. You know what it meant. By doing so, that is, by giving the Corinthians the truth so that they could answer the accusers, he was doing far more than if he had answered the accusers himself. He was equipping the church to combat error in this specific instance and by extension down through the centuries, down through history. He was giving the church of Corinth the information from God himself to combat error and we get to partake of that as well. This is what combats error. Not my brilliance, which you all know I have none. Not, not my study of history, not my... This is what combats error. This is where the truth is found. Everything else that is true is simply an extension of this, a result of a study of this. Everything else is false. And we're going to see some of that. Any questions or comments about verse 12? 
So verse 13, for we are, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So I was thinking about this. We're made fun of, Christians are made fun of because of their belief in a sovereign God of the universe who created the, everything there is in six literal 24-hour days and rested on the seventh. But we're supposed to think someone who thinks this. Now, I'm going to try and paint this picture for you. At some point in the, pre in the, in the Jurassic or pre-Jurassic time, maybe Cretaceous, there was a little rodent running around the ground. And he had a paw that had four fingers. And slowly but surely, the fourth finger extended and didn't get in the way when he was jumping at insects and it didn't cause him to trip and fall so that other predators would eat him. It just, for some reason, this was a good mutation. And it kept getting longer. And then one day, a membrane appeared. And the membrane got connected to the other fingers. And pretty soon, he thought to himself, now, what if I flap these puppies? And he was flying. Well, ah, we got a bat. That's not dumb. Think about it. If, if, you, if you're, you were running, if your living was made, I'm, I know I'm kind of simplifying this, but this is essentially what the, the idea of intermediate stages is, is postulating. That slowly but surely, something evolved with better and better mutational effects that caused it to become better adapted and better suited to surviving than its, its buddies. Why don't we have any of those in the fossil record? Any. Oh, that's right, we do. We have one. It's called the coelacanth, but then they caught one off the coast of India in 1956. Oops. It's because we are of sound mind. We're studying and believing and trusting in the Word of God. And when people want to come up with a way to disparage the Word of God so that they can live the way they want, they'll come up with the most outlandish ideas there are, and evolution is one of them. At its core, it is a rejection of the sovereign God of the universe. And it's pretty interesting that you can take that rejection and create a premise, false premise, but you can build logically from it. And there's pretty good logical steps through the, 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 the answers that they get. One person put it this way. He said, teenagers can work from a false premise to a logical conclusion and still be wrong. I postulate that adults can do that too. When we have the false premise, no matter how good our reasoning is, the result will be wrong. Paul said, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. So whatever it looks like when a Christian is beside himself, as long as he's obeying the Word of God, it is for God. But if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So either way, when he was given the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures in, his, in a sound way, it was for the Corinthians and it was for us. Apparently, his detractors were also calling him a fool or crazy. The word translated beside ourselves is the same word used of Jesus by his relatives when they said that he had lost his senses. It would be the equivalent today to saying, you're nuts. Maybe Paul was so passionate about the gospel that some of his enemies translated his passion as fanatical and imbalanced. People don't like someone who is doggedly truthful no matter where it leads them even if it leads them to conclusions that are negative about themselves and results in change. People don't like to see your bad habits change when they have the same bad habits. It's convicting.
people who will not walk away from the truth no matter where it leads them. This is the refuge of the scoundrel and the hypocrite. Condemn the truth as fanaticism. This is what Festus said to Paul when he gave Agrippa the gospel in Acts chapter 26, verses 19 through 25. So, Paul said, so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad because I'll have to change if this is true. He didn't say that. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. So when you're called crazy because you believe the gospel, you're in really good company. Really good company. And that's not a good reason necessarily to, to be glad. But the fact is you're in company of those who believe the truth. And the truth is here in God's word. So it's good to be aware that the world will treat us this way. And I'm sure probably everyone in here at some time or another has had some variation of this, people thinking they're nuts, they're crazy, they're stupid, they're foolish, um, you can't see the truth, you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. They will, they will either deny it, the people who um, hear this from us, they will either deny it outright or they will attempt to marginalize those who are speaking the truth by claiming they are out of the mainstream. This isn't how things are done today. We've come to a new understanding of things. They are crazy or intolerant. Intolerant. Paul was intolerant. Or some other pejorative that seeks to trivialize the gospel or make it seem malicious. And that I see a lot going on today. They're not just trying to trivialize the gospel. They're trying to make it seem malicious, evil, wicked, malevolent, hurtful, damaging, the opposite of what it is, freeing, creative, loving, eternal. They're trying to make it seem the opposite of that. Paul is telling the Corinthians that whatever he did, whether it seemed that he was beside himself or it seemed that he was of sound mind, he did for the Corinthians. His concern was simply that God would be honored and the truth would be proclaimed. And it's interesting, I had this all put together before Andrew came here, but that's essentially what the training for evangelism is is this recognizing that this is the truth that people need, whether they think they need it or not. And sometimes when I was a child, I remember my parents forcing medicine on me. Why is it that they make medicine taste like diesel and feathers? Couldn't they, you know, at least back then, instead of orange juice or something? I don't know, maybe it did, and my parents just gave me the other stuff. But sometimes when people have are having the right thing done for them for the right reason, they don't like it. It's an amazing thing when we have to remember. We, I know this is a cliche, it seems like, but it's not. But for the grace of God, there go I happily. There go I with vigor. There go I meaner than anyone else. And it's, it's a fact that when all things become new, the spirit and the, the spirit is regenerated, the body follows, and our mind 
That's why Paul says, renew your mind in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 12. And the reason we, so yes, we do need to defend the gospel, but I think it was Spurgeon that said the gospel, the, the Bible needs no defense. It's, it's, a, it's a lion, set it free and it will defend itself. Something like that. I'd have to look it up, but that's, that's the gist of it. So there are times when, as Peter says, we, we give reasons for the hope that lies within us. And sometimes those reasons have to do with geology and other things. But what we have to come back to is the gospel and telling people the gospel. Yes, 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 I can, I can work through the bad evolution and show you how silly it is, but that's just a second or a third or a fourth issue. The issue is, what will you do with Jesus? Right. I happen to have a few more substance to my faith, but I won't say that out loud to you, so. <laughs> Any other comments? I'm grateful for the Word of God, and we need to come back to it, back to it. Yes, the books of learning and the commentaries and everything are good, and, and useful, but we need to come back to the gospel. Paul didn't say, for I am not ashamed of the history of Philemon or the history of Plato. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And therein is the power. There's, there's good information in good, well-written encyclopedias, but there's no power. There's power here. Power. For the love of Christ, and here's what's doing this, not to be a grand diet, not to be lifted up and, and made more of or less of. That's not important to me, Paul says. He says, for the love of Christ, and in the King James, I believe the King James says constrains us, but it controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Paul was motivated, driven, and controlled by the love that Christ showed him specifically and personally. The gospel is not a corporate thing. It's an individual application. I have been saved individually by the grace of a God who should have sent me to hell with forth, forthwith, post-haste. I individually, not because of a church, not because of, but because of Christ himself. That's where it, that's the end all and the be all, Paul is saying. He never lost the wonder that he found in recognizing that Christ had particularly chosen him as one of his sheep. That motivation was partially responsible for causing Paul to defend his apostleship in this way. He knew that if he lost this platform, he could not communicate effectively the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. It was this service that he longed to continue, and so he defends his ministry. It may seem as though this verse is saying that Christ died for all sinners. That cannot be true, though, because if he did, his death was inefficient and ineffective because it didn't save all sinners. Unfortunately, most will not go to heaven... As wide is the way to perdition and narrow is the way to heaven. The simplest understanding and the correct one is that Christ died for, Greek, hooper, hooper, that is, in place of those who died with Him, as this verse said, believers. Who died with Him? Believers or unbelievers? Romans 6. We have died with Christ. We've been baptized. We've been raised up so that what? We can walk in newness of life. We died with Him. Believers. And I don't say that arrogantly or self-righteously. I say that, why me? But still, it's the truth. Those who died with him, all who were in Adam, that is the entire human race, became sinners because of Adam's sin. So in the same way, all who are in Christ, those who believe savingly, are saved by his death and in fact die with him. Charles Hodge explains it this way. As the sin of Adam was legally and effectively the sin of his race, so the death of Christ was legally and effectively, the death of his people. 
This doctrine underlies the whole scheme of redemption. It is, so to speak, the generic idea of the entire epistle to the Romans. The apostle shows that man, ruined by the sin of Adam, is restored by the work of Christ. His people are so united to him that his death is their death, and his life is their life. Isn't that remarkable? If we be dead with him, Romans 8, Romans chapter 6 says, we shall also live with him. Only if we died with him. Only believers. Hence, believers are said to be crucified with Christ, to rise with him, to reign with him. That's Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. The simple meaning of the words, if one died for all, then all died. Therefore is that Christ's death was the death of his people. Adam's death was the death of his people. This is we have seen, this as we have seen is according to the analogy of Scripture and is also entirely pertinent to the design of this passage. A good idea of the idea of being controlled by the love of Christ or love for Christ, by the way, is in Acts chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, the apostle said, let us warn them, or the, the, um, Sadducees and the Pharisees said, let us warn them, the apostles, to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus, that is. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, they're bound now, they're under the, the I mean, the Romans could kill them. They could be, this is not just being teased in front of a class. This is, this could have been life or death. So they're bound. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. That's why they let them go. Because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So they, they succumbed to some pressure there. And much to the advantage of the gospel in Acts chapter 4. Any comments about verse 14? So verse 15, we'll probably tie this up here. And he, Christ Jesus, died for all, so that they who live, who is that? We live with him, it's us, might no longer live for themselves. <laughs> that is hard. I like living for myself. But for him who died and rose again, on their behalf, on our behalf, died and rose again. A simple and sublime truth that in dying for all, Christ provided the way through salvation and subsequent indwelling by the Holy Spirit so that those who died with Him, believers, will live for Him and not for themselves. That's one of the purposes of the new birth, so that we will live for Him and not for ourselves, so that we will live for others and not for ourselves. <laughs> And so believers have not only died with Christ, but they will, we will rise again with Him. This truth follows and is part of the reminder Paul is giving here that service to God out of devotion to Him is the ultimate and ongoing culmination of salvation. There will be times when we will obey out of duty. Better obedience, obedience and disobedience, I say. But as our lives progress, as our love for Christ grows more and more profound each and every day, there will become more of a devotion to Him and an obedience to Him because we just love Him. I don't, I, 
I don't want to hurt my wife's feelings. So I do things differently than I would just to make sure she's well taken care of, happy. It should be more so. Infinitely more so for the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 4 and 5. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Romans 6, 10 and 11. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yourselves, us. And Romans 14, 7 through 9. For not one of us lives for himself. This is after, after salvation. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether therefore we live, therefore whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. And Galatians 19, 2, 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then finally, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. For you have died. There's a lot of dying words here. The believers, those whom he came for, have died. And your life now is hidden. And that's a good hidden. That means it's protected, it's sheltered, it's covered. It's in a safekeeping box. Who do you think can open up the safe that God has sealed? God himself only. And he has protected you there. When Christ, is our, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's some aspect of the Bema Seat that I didn't point out. That after the judgment, there's going to be glory. Glory all around. And the believers will be revealed with Christ in glory. What do we do to deserve that? Nothing. Nothing. We contributed, one man put it this way, what have we contributed to our salvation? We contributed the sin that needed to be paid for. That's what we contributed. So as we contemplate these things this morning, it's been evident to me that it's good to, to revisit again the fact that we're not ourselves. We're not, we're, this wasn't done just for us. It was done for all who will come to Christ. And we, having been saved, having been born again, having been scheduled to rise again with him, are the ones who are communicating this to the world. And Paul's going to talk about being ambassadors. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself, although you, probably, you guys have probably read this part before anyway, so it's like the story has already been revealed. But we are his ambassadors. That means we speak for him. Isn't that a bit spooky? Not if you speak from his word. The word he gave us, the truth, that's what we speak from. It is the living, effective word of God that divides right down to the marrow and separates that which needs to be removed from a life and that which needs to be augmented in a life. That was what God has done for us. And Paul said it this way. He said, whether you think I'm crazy or you think I'm of sound mind, 
it's for you, it's for God. And that's how we need to think. What we are doing is for God. Let's make sure it's a biblical doing. Any questions before we close? Comments? This was a good section for me. What a reminder that even worms can be useful. They aerate the soil so that the grass can grow. So I can be a good worm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have chosen down through time those who would be your children, your sheep, and they've heard your voice. And there are many in here, if not all, who have heard your voice. They are walking according to your word. And Lord, we all get off a little bit of time to time. But we ask you to bring us back to remind us that you died for us and, you, and we need to live for you. That that dying and that resurrection was not just for salvation, but it was for a life of devotion that will lead others to Christ, that will lead the other sheep to hear his voice and to trust him. And what a delight that will be to stand before you knowing that you used us for your glory. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.